VCs have been sounding the alarms and everyone is wondering how to conserve cash. What decisions should you make in your go-to-market? I explored this question with Alexa Grabel, CEO and founder of Pocus. We discussed topics such as what roles should you prioritize across your go-to-market? How do you run a category creation or community motion in a low-cost way? And what do you do if you've already hired senior, i.e. highly paid, go-to-market leaders? I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did and feel free to reach out to me with any thoughts. Let's dive in. Alexa, thank you so much for joining us today. You and I have done a fair bit of content together in the past, and every time I think we find new topics to explore. So I'm really excited to have you back today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Allison. And I love that we're both tuning in from Philadelphia right now. (laughs) (laughs) Representing Philly. So today we're going to talk about what do current market conditions mean for a company's go-to-market strategy, which is obviously you know, a topic that's on most people's minds right now. And I think you're going to have some really interesting insights into this. To start, can you just talk broadly about how would a potential recession impact go-to-market teams? Yeah, it's a great question. So stepping back a bit, maybe I can talk about my background because then I think the thought process around product-led growth and product-led sales can inform how I think about the recession and those in the community that I've been communicating with recently. Quickly, I am the founder of Pocus, which is a product-led sales platform. So we help sales and go-to-market teams at product-led growth companies understand their data to convert it into revenue. And so what I've been seeing is a big shift around, you know, there's a recession, whether we're in the early days or it's coming soon. um, What do we do about our go-to-market? Do we, if we are PLG, do we convert to sales-led or vice versa? Should I be thinking about hybrid? And I think that there's different impacts on different teams. And so if I were to separate this into four different areas of impact for what go-to-market looks like, I would say there's an impact on leadership where leadership at companies, PLG or not, are going to say, you know, we need to take a hard look at our go-to-market metrics. We need to look at cost of customer acquisition, net dollar retention, revenue, and say, what is the true health of the business? And we're moving from a time where it was, let's throw money and experiment and just grow as fast as we can to, okay, let's be very thoughtful and have durable growth and profitability. And then the second would be sales team. So I think that there's been, unfortunately, a lot of chat about layoffs and it feels like it's just sad, but it's taking over my LinkedIn right now. And companies are starting to think, you know, if I have only a sales-led motion, That means that the number of ads I have can be directly correlated to revenue. And so there needs to be other ways to get creative there. Third would be marketing teams. I think obviously there's going to be less budget for paid ads, uh, marketing. And so folks will have to get really creative with organic and such as content and community. And then finally, buyers. So other companies that are buying B2B products they're going to be saying, you know, it's going to be tougher, the tougher sell to get the money to actually make the purchase. And they're going to really have to see the value before that. So lots of impact across various folks on go-to-market teams. You kind of alluded to this. It seems pretty clear that if you typically, if you, if you pursue a product like growth strategy, probably you are going to be able to grow more efficiently. I think that's probably how most people think about PLG. Does that mean that if I'm not a PLG company, I should think about shifting into PLG? Definitely wouldn't say that's the rule. I would say (laughs) it depends. It could be the answer. 
it could not be. So I'm not saying that if you have a really strong sales led motion, it's time to flip the switch and just make a huge pivot and become product led. What I do think should be happening is folks should be thinking like a product led company. So product led growth companies, they are saying, how do I remove any friction? in the onboarding process? How do I activate customers? How do I reduce the need for humans in this process so that buyers can realize the value without being kind of chatting with humans throughout the process? And so what I would say if I were a sales-led company, maybe you do have the budget to say, you know, I want to experiment with freemium or free trial. Great. Like that could be longer term effects to get through where the market is heading in the next couple of years. Um, But what I would also say is to put that PLG thinking cap on, where can I eliminate friction and add product earlier in the user journey? I don't care if you call it product-led growth. I don't care what it is. Just think about removing friction. So, for example, I was just chatting with the CEO of really fast-growing company. They're at the Series D stage. They have a hybrid product-led growth and sales-led motion. Um, And what we were talking about is where are the lowest-hanging fruit? of where he can drive folks to the product, reduce friction, make things more automated. And we talked about the onboarding process. So after a free trial, what happens for them is they have a sales rep reach out and say, okay, your free trial is coming to an end. Do you want to chat about what the relationship could look like? And then I'll send you an invoice. That process, and I was actually on the receiving end of that process at one point, is for most of your customers, not necessary. If you have an SMB or mid-market customer, that could have been eliminated by just saying, you know, swipe a credit card after the free trial and have a sales assist person or a product specialist reach out and say, I'm here for you. And then maybe 10% of the customers that are more enterprise can have a call. So those areas where, you know, you can take a step back and say, do we really need a human there or can this process be automated? And if we don't need a human there, where can, what's a better use of that person's time? And in my opinion, a better use of that person's time instead of hopping on a 30 minute call with everyone who doesn't need to is saying, is reaching out and doing how can I help you? How can I add more value in building that relationship for a long time? So if I'm a more traditional sales-like company and I'm looking to experiment with more of a hybrid model where I have some of these best practices of product-like growth baked into my model in the future, what might be some experiments that I could run in order to adopt some PLG practices? Yeah, product-like growth is just a series of hypotheses and experiments to test. So if you are lucky that you have some sort of product touch points before the buying cycle, whether that is a free trial or a premium product, instead of reaching out to every single customer that's on a free trial, an experiment you can run is to say, you know, we're going to take this subset of customers and see how much longer it takes them to convert from free to paid without a human touch point. And then how much does the human touch point actually pull forward the revenue? And if the human touch point of the sales aren't reaching out and getting on the phone and doing discovery and Setting an invoice, you know, cuts down the sales cycle from, I don't know, six months to six days. That's absolutely worth it to still have that. But what I would guess is in a lot of companies with a strong free trial and strong product-led motion where the product's really self-explanatory and you can do a lot of creative things like email templates for onboarding and in-app onboarding experiments, then what you'll see is, you know, what's the difference between one month and two months? Does that actually matter? Or is that pulling your revenue forward just a month, is that worth it for that sales rep? And so could you then figure out, okay, it looks like there is some opportunity to eliminate a human from that process. Then how could we, without the human, speed up that process? 
So, you know, we take out the human, they don't need to reach out, but are there other creative things we can do like within the product of add a Chrome extension or add nudges or add a drift campaign that don't involve a salesperson, but can actually bring revenue forward at the same time. So it's a bunch of baby steps and experiments along the way to figure out, you know, is this possible for our organization and how does it impact the long-term revenue numbers? So let's say I'm already a product-led sales company. And so therefore I'm probably doing things quite efficiently already. What should I do given a potential recession to protect my PLG motion? If you already have a product-led sales motion, what that tells me is you are pretty data-driven. You are using your existing users, whether they're self-serve or existing users on the product to say, I am going to tap into this user base to convert from free trial to paid or to find upsell and expansion and cross-sell opportunities. And so the more that you can be data-driven and use that data that's usually in places like your data warehouse to supercharge your go-to-market team, the more you're going to be able to close deals faster. And so what I actually mean by that is there's a lot, a lot of data that lives across your organization around how your users are using your product, whether it's, you know, who's signing up, who's engaging with what features, are they sharing the product? And typically that data lives in a data warehouse like Snowflake or Redshift or BigQuery. And the more that you can get sales teams and customer success teams access to that data, the better. And so what I mean by that is if you're an SDR and you want to be prospecting and you want the highest rate of getting on a call and feeling like this is a good opportunity and it's going to be qualified, would you rather go after someone who's been on your product for six months and clearly loves the product and has shared it with many other folks? Or would you rather cold DM someone on LinkedIn? Statistically, the first option is better. And so how do you find that data about who the good customer is? That's what's typically trapped in the data warehouse. So the more that companies can supercharge and give SDRs access to the data and let them analyze it and take action on it, the better. And this goes among various different um, roles. So like account managers, if they want to understand which of their accounts has the opportunity for upsell or cross-sell or expansion, instead of having, you know, several different discovery calls to figure out what teams might have an opportunity there to start using your product or where you think that uh, your existing users could benefit from a new module or a new product feature. Look in your data, which can save you a ton of time of talking to the customers and getting to understand. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but you should be able to go into those conversations and say, hey, I noticed you're doing X, but not Y. Can I help you with Y? And so being as data-driven as possible to personalize and customize the message to speed up that sales cycle. Now, if I'm a PLS company, product-led sales company, I'm constrained in headcount, budget, or recruiting capacity. What roles should I prioritize across my go-to-market motion? It's a really good question. And it is different for every company, right? If you're really focused on new business, uh, maybe you want to bring in some AEs if you're focused on expanding existing relationships. Maybe it's more on the customer success side. What I'll say in this market that we're in, it's obviously going to be less expensive to expand existing customers versus find new business. And it's going to be easier to do that. And it's going to be more expensive to lose existing customers than to lose someone who was never a customer. So if you are in that area, which I think most companies will be, where you're saying, how do I retain these existing customers and make them continuously happy and paying and Um, activated on our product, I would say you would want to look at more of the post-sales roles, 
or folks that can continue with adoption and activation and eventually renewal and upsell and expansion. And so I would look at my business and say, okay, where do I see the most friction? Where do I see that we can have the most value add? And if you have, for example, a bunch of self-serve users and you're saying, how do I then convert those to paid? I would look at sales assist or product specialist or an onboarding specialist where it's this hybrid role of SDR and support and success and helping those users get the most value out of the product quicker so that they turn into paid. Or if you're having trouble with expansion and renewals or upsell, then that could be, you know, even a one-to-many CSM or digital scaled CSM group. Um, So it's really looking at your organization, figuring out if you can really grow your business with the existing user base. And then finding where there are the most areas of friction and where you need humans to be involved. Now, Alexa, I know that you and your company have been amazing at building community and also partly with services category creation. I know a lot of companies are trying to pursue a category creation motion that can be very expensive, which is obviously not a desirable thing in any case, but also particularly entering a potential downturn. So if I'm trying to be a category creator or trying to build community around my ideas, my company, What's a way to do that in a low-cost way? Before even figuring out if you should build a new category in a community around it and how you can do that in a low-cost way, you should step zero and say, do I need to create a new category? And do I want to put the resources toward this? Because like you said, it can be very expensive. It's a lot of work. So you need to only do it if you know the category doesn't already exist. And this is part of your long-term strategy. This isn't just something to experiment with for the year. It's part of the entire growth of your organization. Um, So, I mean, you and I talked about this for a long time in several meetings around why there needs to be this product-led sales category for us, particularly. It just didn't exist. It's a new sales motion, new structure, new type of role, new tech stack. And so we were very confident that this had to happen. um, And we almost felt a pull of the community with that. So I'll say, I know a lot of people, there's reading and I know that the experts all say category creation is expensive, but I think marketing in general is expensive and it's more a reallocation of where you want to spend your budget. So for us, we built the focus community. We started this time last year with 20 people on a Slack channel. um, And our whole goal was quality over quantity and just add a lot of value and get experts in the room that are talking about product-led sales and who are eager to learn and eager to, you know, communicate and debate. And then the community organically grew to now close to 1,300 folks um, who are all talking about product-led sales. And from the conversations within the community is what then drove our content. And then our content is what drove the category creation. And so in this process, we've spent very, very little money on our community, very little. It's really organic and it's all about, you know, leveraging and tapping community members to host an AMA, to facilitate a workshop, to make introductions before, between those who you know it will be a valuable relationship for both of their companies. And then they start talking about product-led sales and how Pocus has helped them get there. And so, yeah, actually, I think the first real dollar we're spending towards our community is in a couple of weeks, we're having our first in-person meetup. And I, I think that is the first dollar going to community. So I think if you're focusing it more on, you know, I know I want to build a category, and part of that comes with the community. Think about it in terms of, okay, how do I take this group of evangelists and help them kind of get what's sitting in their brain on paper and facilitate the debate and the communication and then continue to take that and run with it, whether it's in meetups, whether it's in content and keep going from there. 
rather than, you know, how can I take my budget and throw it all into community and figure it out? (laughs) Alexa, one of the questions that I'm getting from founders that I work with is how to preserve cash runway. And in particular, you know, I've had some founders who are very experienced, have amazing networks, and therefore have been able to build out pretty senior teams on the go-to-market side earlier in their company than probably most founders would. That's amazing in a lot of ways, but unfortunately, it means that their cost structure is higher maybe than is desirable. So if I'm a founder thinking about where to keep senior leadership in a product-led sales company, where do you think those dollars are best supplied? It's an interesting question, and I think it depends on the stage of the company. And I'll also say it depends on if you're early, early stage, other decisions that you're willing to make as a founder. So if I had, for example, an early founding team of go-to-market professionals that I thought were stellar, then there might, and I wanted to, you know, maintain them and build with them and grow, but I knew that we didn't have the burn. And honestly, I would have the conversation around equity and comp split. Like that from a founder perspective, that's where I would go. Like if I was very confident that, well, I'll say it's not just around them being great leaders. I think when you're at the seed A, B stage, they also have to be executors. So even if they are a leader, they need to be willing to get in the weeds and try things and do the job as an IC as well as a manager with the long-term vision of they're going to grow the team. And that's I'm putting on my cap of founder Alexa versus like product-led sales Alexa, where it's what we did with our founding team, right? Like we had the conversation around, yes, you could be a manager and a leader and scale up this team, but for the first couple of years, you're going to be an IC and then build it out. And then, you know, of course you have to have those conversations of this is the capital we have left. This is the runway. If you want to be on the team, this is the equity comp split that makes sense now. And we can reevaluate in a couple months. So you're thinking that actually people should perhaps be open to taking pay cuts in exchange for maybe greater equity? It depends. So I'm thinking more of who you're also going to hire. And so when you're having those hiring conversations, there are just some people who you want to get them. And of course, things are different at different stages of life and what's valuable for you. But there are just some hungry people that say, look, I believe in your company so, so, so much that I'm willing to do anything for it. And if I need to take a pay cut for the first year because of the conditions we're in, and have it in exchange for equity that may be more in the long run, I'm willing to do it. Obviously, that's not everyone's scenario, but I think that that is often a really good indicator of someone who genuinely believes that this is going to be something huge in the future. I would hold on to them. If they're willing to get in the weed, so long as they're not sitting around all day, but in startups, no one's sitting around all day. But in terms of your existing employees, I think it depends. I think pay cuts would be tough. I think that there's a lot of different things that I would do. I would maybe have that conversation around the equity comp split. I would think about some folks who, if you say, you know, they're in a, a great leader, but we might not need them for the next two years because we need someone more junior, maybe bring them on as an advisor and switch it to more equity than comp. There's probably a lot of creative things you can do. I'll say if I find someone that is special and incredible, and I know they're going to be part of the POCUS journey forever, I will hold on to them regardless of what it takes. Um, and make both work. I don't believe in having to say, you know, either or. I think of more like make the ant work. So make us be able to have the runway and keep them around in some form or fashion. I've heard that the cost of advertising may go up in the future. I don't know a ton about this subject, but given, for example, increasing privacy requirements, it might just be more difficult and more costly to reach your audience. And I'm wondering what that means for product-led sales companies. I know you said earlier that in general, particularly entering recession, but also in general, it's good to have more of your leads coming from organic 
sources, less from paid ads. But I am curious, you know, if if I'm the kind of company that has a meaningful amount of my pipeline coming from paid ads, how should I think about what might be the future of the cost of advertising and like how to allocate my spend? I would be interested to actually dive into the numbers here, but I'll tell you anecdotally what I observe. So I think really good product-led growth companies and then that add on a product-led sales motion after have a strong self-serve flywheel. And that strong self-serve flywheel maybe in the early days came from paid advertising. But what I do think is it's more about the virality and the community effect that drives it, which then isn't directly related to how much money you put in to the number of users of that. You need to start that flywheel so that the cost of, cus- of acquiring every new customer goes way down regardless of how many paid ads you have. So I'm thinking of Notion, for example. It took them a couple of years to get up and running, but then they started to recognize that there were a bunch of folks that were using Notion and getting paid to actually build Notion templates. And then um, they were actually like ambassadors of Notion informally. So what did Notion do? They hired these ambassadors and said, you know, keep telling us, keep spreading the word, like, find new areas, start a community in this region, in this geography, in this industry around how they can use Notion. And so I think that for good product-led growth companies, they actually tap into product hacks, growth hacks, and community more than just paid marketing. I'll say I don't have the numbers on that. That's just what I'm hearing from my community and anecdotally. So I don't know. I, I guess that's also how we run Pocus. Like it's all around community and content versus paid advertising. That's really smart. And I think a lot of founders that I know are really thinking through how to double down on their organic channels. So that makes a lot of sense. One of the other concerns that I've heard circulated a lot in our industry is about tech companies that sell to other tech companies. Yeah. In a way, you know, all this influx of capital over the past years, especially has just been like self-referentially fueling tech companies growth. You put more money into a tech company then they sell to all your other portfolio companies and then they're able to raise more money and sell to the other portfolio companies. And it's kind of a you know, flywheel from there, which you could imagine crashing down when capital becomes more scarce. And, you know, in particular, I think the tech industry has been affected more than other industries by the recent downturn since when interest rates go up, it discounts future cash flows, which is really like what the valuations of tech companies are largely based on. It's growth that's coming in the future, right? So totally. if I'm a tech company selling into other tech companies, primarily, I might be a little concerned and eager to diversify. I'm wondering, especially how does this potential trend affect product-like growth companies. I would think that tech people would be more likely to sign up for self-serve products than non-tech people. Although I I don't know if that's the case, but I am curious to just know your perspective on like, if I'm a PLG company, how should I think about this sort of vertical segmentation of my customer base and how to evolve it over time? Yeah, I'll answer the question from really first any tech company, and then I can narrow into product-led. For any software company, and I was just talking about this with my team, now's the time to not be a nice-to-have product. You must be a need-to-have product if you're going to sell it to other B2B software companies. And so what I mean by that is there has to be such clear ROI on revenue generation or time saved. And so that's what we've been narrowing in on as Pocus is how do we figure out or how we are a revenue-generating product for other companies and we can save them time. So how can we show our customers that we are saving them 10 engineering heads 
for a big fraction of that cost. So for tech companies, broadly, the reason I say this, it's a little bit of finding that your ROI is way more of a need to have than a nice to have and positioning it and messaging it in a way that makes sense on why you, every company is still going to need software. They're not going to say, you know, we're just giving up and everything's cut and we're firing everyone. No, it's how do you optimize this? And even tech companies are going to say, maybe we need software instead of these 10 engineers. And so that is a broader statement for product led. I think that absolutely still applies. I think if you can do this, product led is a long game. And if you can play that long game and you have the capital, it's great to be able to take this time to build those self-serve flywheels and become really embedded in organizations across just that viral growth. And a lot of the best PLG companies did this where they weren't charging a ton in the early days because their goal was more around activation and adoption than revenue. And so, I mean, I can think about a lot of our customers right now that are doing that. And then once the market's in better conditions, you can go in and have a really good kind of story of we're now in every single one of your team's organizations. Like we can roll this up into an enterprise license. And once we go from free to paid, you're going to be saving millions of dollars. So I know that's not everyone has that opportunity, but I do think a lot of well-funded PLG companies right now, which feels like a lot of companies that had are heading into the recession can play that game. It seems like in general, a lot of companies are trying to move up market into enterprise in this moment. What are you noticing with the companies that you work with? It's interesting. All right, I'm going to have a hot take. I think that's something that investors like to say, you know, that's what we've seen in the past work. What I think is more, you know, get creative with your go-to-market and do what works. And so I was doing a lot of thinking about past recessions and what is this, where have people either shifted their product or their go-to-market motion. And there's proof that recessions and down markets can lead to breakthrough companies. I mean, you think of Airbnb and COVID where everyone thought Airbnb was dead. I remember saying I'd never book an Airbnb again, but they just took all of their resources and people and allocated it towards long-term state. And so what I mean is they got creative. They fixed it. They said, okay, we're going to have a different go-to-market and strategy. We're not going to do the one-week Airbnbs. We're going to do the three-month Airbnbs. And that's the same for every company. Like maybe your strategy is I don't want to be SMB self-serve right now because I don't have the capital to you know play the long game of PLG and I want to go up market. Great. Experiment with that. I would say be data-driven, be personalized. Make sure that you're constantly checking that that is working and that you're pulling revenue forward at a very faster rate than what you were doing before. And so it's not a satisfying answer, but it depends for every company. And I would just say be very creative and diligent and agile through the process. All right, Alexa, this has been an awesome conversation. Any last tips for folks who are trying to manage their go-to-market through a potential downturn? It's a good question. I would say, you know, just to repeat what I've said before, if you're product-led, I would double down. If you're sales-led, I would start thinking like a product-led company, find ways to reduce friction, find ways to add value through automation versus humans, and just get creative instead of trying to throw a lot of heads at a problem. Think through how you can optimize growth and activation and onboarding with the fewest amount of resources. Alexa, thank you so much for joining us today. This is great. Thank you for having me. 